The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Glory to you, Lord Christ. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. As we remain standing, let us pray. Lord Jesus, would you feed us with yourself this morning, that we might not hunger, that we might not thirst, but believing and trusting in you, we might be filled up for everlasting life. Teach us from your word that we might feast on you and follow you for the glory of your name. We pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> I want to start out this morning by telling you one of the reasons why I love being your pastor. Now, this may seem a little self-indulgent, but there's a point to it. And the truth is, you're kind of a captive audience, so I'm just going to go for it. One of the reasons I love what I do is because nearly every week, I get to go hunting for treasure in a location where I am guaranteed to find immeasurable wealth. I begin the week with a set of precise coordinates, not GPS coordinates, but a chapter and verses from the Bible. A few sentences set down thousands of years ago in ancient languages through which God has revealed himself to humankind. And when I arrive at those verses, my job is to dig, to study, to pray, to ask questions, to flip backwards and forwards in the text, to try to understand what God might be saying to us today through this ancient word. During those weeks when I'm preaching, uh, I pr spend 10 to 12 hours, sometimes more, unearthing treasures and attempting to, to assemble them into a 25-minute sermon. Who else? Who else in the world gets paid to explore the most interesting and profitable collection of writings ever assembled and then share what they discover with other people every week? That's a pretty cool job. Now, I tell you all of this in part because I want you to know that I love this work I also share it because even though you all don't preach on Sunday mornings, you can join in this work whenever you want. God has given us himself in this incredible book. Yes, it can be confusing. Sometimes it, it, it can seem a little dull, 
But anyone with an ounce of discipline and a dash of curiosity can hunt for treasure and find it every time you go looking. And the reward of reading this book, it's not just the chance to hold up beautiful things for other people to see. The reward is a life transformed by the power of God. Because when we study His Word, this Word of life, we're changed. We're drawn into the life of God Himself and we learn to live the lives that He longs for us to lead. So we're starting a new sermon series today and it's on the life of Elijah. Elijah is a reclusive, combative, emotionally volatile man. He's also a man who trusted in God in a time when very few did. We're going to take a look at just seven verses this morning, seven verses which, frankly, upon first reading, aren't particularly exciting or obviously inspiring. But as I hope you will see over the next 20 minutes or so, they're filled with treasure. If you're not there already, turn there with me to page 299 in the Red Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 17. So this is the first time Elijah is mentioned in Scripture. And we're introduced to him in an an abrupt and matter-of-fact way. The author of 1 Kings gives us no backstory and almost no personal details about him. All that we're told is that Elijah is from Tishba in in Gilead. Now, if this were reality TV, we would all know instinctively that Elijah isn't going to make it past the first round because he doesn't have an interesting backstory, right? But of course, this is not reality TV. This is scripture. And when a man steps out of the blue to speak the word of God to the king of Israel, we all sit up and we pay attention. Though we know nothing about Elijah personally, we we know a lot about the story that he is a part of. It's a story about God and how the people he called and the people that he called to be his own, a people specially commissioned to bear his image and to take his blessing into every corner of the world. And when Elijah steps into this story, though, in the middle of the ninth century BC, God's people are a mess. They had begun a downward spiral roughly a hundred years earlier at the end of Solomon's reign. Now, you may remember that Solomon was the wisest of all the kings of Israel. The son of David, he built the temple in Jerusalem and he ushered Israel into an age of unrivaled prosperity and peace. But in his later years, he succumbed to temptation taking on wives and concubines from different nations. He allowed them to worship the gods of their homelands and to bring their idols into Jerusalem, the city of the one true God. That was the beginning. After Solomon's death, the kingdom was split into two. Those based in Jerusalem, the south, known as the kingdom of Judah, they were on relatively stable ground, generally following God and his word. Those in the north, however, known as the kingdom of Israel, they were pretty much rotten from the start. It was Jeroboam who first took charge in the north. A former government administrator, Jeroboam, established his splinter kingdom, and he immediately faced a problem. If the people were going to remain loyal to them, to him, 
then he would have to wean them away from worshiping at the temple in Jerusalem where his rival ruled as king over the southern tribes. Because of this, in a devastating sequence, just a few chapters before the one we read this morning, Jeroboam rejects worship at the temple by establishing sacrificial sites in two other cities led by false priests. At those sites, he abolishes the religious calendar that God had given to Moses, and he sets up golden calves for the people to worship. Now, you would think that someone might have remembered how things turned out the last time a golden calf was introduced as an object of worship in the days of Aaron and Moses. But apparently no one did. And in nine calamitous verses, the entire religious life of the northern kingdom of Israel is transformed into a smoldering wreck of idolatry. But Jeroboam wasn't even the worst. Among the kings of the the north, that title is held by Ahab, who was the seventh king to follow Jeroboam. We're introduced to Ahab in 1 Kings 16, just before we're introduced to Elijah. And there we're told the following. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Naboth, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and he went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. So if the avalanche began when Jeroboam tumbled over the top of the precipice, Ahab was the enormous boulder that took down half the mountain as he fell. That's the context and that's the moment when Elijah steps on stage. One man speaking the word of God to a rebellious king. And when he does, He reveals the truth about power and the reality of God's judgment. And then as he turns to leave, he introduces us to the adventure of obedience. These are the three themes that I want for us to consider briefly as we dig into our text this morning. Verse 1, now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishba and Gilead said to to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. When these two men come face to face, Ahab holds all the power. He's the king, after all. He imposes taxes. He apportions the land. He hands down death sentences. He has all the power in the room, but he can't control the weather. He can't control the weather, which is why, as we learned in the previous chapter, he worships Baal. Baal was the supreme god in the Canaanite pantheon. He was the god of the heavens, of wind and rain, and therefore of fertility. If there was drought and if there was famine, 
it was because Baal was unhappy. If there was rain and a good harvest, it was because Baal was happy. It was he to whom Ahab turned as the one who controlled the weather and determined whether or not Ahab's people would live. And it was Baal's power that Elijah called into question when he stepped into Ahab's presence. So Elijah's name means my God is Yahweh. In the context, it is a none too subtle rebuke of Ahab's idolatry. Notice how Elijah speaks about God. First, he refers to him as the God who lives, implying that Baal is nothing more than a lifeless idol. Then Elijah says that he stands before God. Elijah's claiming that the real power in the room isn't Ahab and it isn't Baal. It's the God of Israel who made the earth and controls every drop of rain in the heavens. So Elijah inhabited a world where everyone else worshipped Baal. The Israelites, they may still have believed in the God of Israel who had made a covenant with Abraham, brought them out of slavery in Egypt, and given them the promised land, but they had been taught by their kings and by the Canaanites who lived around them that if they wanted rain, and therefore crops, and therefore food, well, then they needed to offer the occasional sacrifice to Baal. Think about it, and the world we live in is not so different. We say that we believe in the God who became one of us in Jesus Christ, died for our sins, and rose from the dead. And we say that we have trusted him with our lives, both present and future. And we say that we will rely on him for all our needs. But we have been taught by the world around, this, by the world around us that if we want to get ahead, to succeed, to protect ourselves and those whom we love, then we're going to have to make some sacrifices to the gods of this age along the way. What do we offer as sacrifice? Well, one common offering is our priorities. We neglect worshiping together, studying Scripture, and praying for our needs and those of the world around us because there's just so much to do. And we justify this by saying, it's a busy season. I'll get back to these things when life slows down. But the season doesn't end, does it? Another offering we make on the altars of success and self-protection is our honesty. We make mistakes, but we don't own them because people who make mistakes don't move ahead. So we blame others. We tell half-truths, deceiving others and eventually ourselves. Another common sacrifice is our integrity. An opportunity comes along to invest in a profitable comp company with questionable accounting practices, and you go for it because, well, you're not the one cooking the books. Or you look the other way when things are off at work because you know it might affect your bonus. We sacrifice all sorts of things all sorts of things on the altars of success and self-protection. Not just our priorities, honesty and integrity, but our marriages, our relationships with our kids, our friendships. All because even though we say we trust in God, 
sometimes we feel the need to take care of things on our own. That's the logic that led Ahab to Baal. And it is a logic that Elijah roundly rejects because he knows the truth about power. The truth about power is that one, God really is in control. And two, we can never be in control of our lives no matter how hard we try. God really is sovereign over everything. He really does care about us, who we are, how we live. And we need to trust Him, actually trust Him with ourselves, our loved ones, and our future because the control that we think we can gain over our lives through these little sacrifices we make all the time in different ways to different idols, that control is a total and dangerous illusion. Now, because he knows these truths about power, Elijah refuses to sacrifice anything to Baal. He refuses to sacrifice his priorities, his integrity, his honesty, or any of his relationships in an attempt to cover his bases just in case God doesn't come through. Elijah would rather risk his life by challenging the king than risk his eternal well-being by dishonoring God. This truth about power is an invitation to trust in the God who made us, who loves us, and longs for us to live according to His will. That's the first theme that we encounter in this brief picture of Elijah and Ahab. The second is the awful reality of God's judgment the reality of God's judgment. If you flip back a few books in your Bibles to the book of Deuteronomy, it can be summed up in two very short sentences. Obedience leads to blessing. Disobedience leads to cursing. Deuteronomy contains Moses' final instructions to God's people, and he wants them to know not only that obeying God leads to life and joy, but that disobeying God leads to judgment and eventual destruction. In chapters 11 and 28 of Deuteronomy, Moses says specifically that the dew and the rain are signs of God's covenant blessing on his people. And immediately after he says this, in both chapters he explains that the price of disobedience will be their absence. No rain, no dew, meaning drought, leading to famine, ending in death. Because Ahab has rebelled against God by practicing idolatry and because the people have followed suit, Elijah announces that not a single drop of rain or bead of dew will appear for the next three years. He pronounces a curse on God's people and it's one that Moses had promised all those years before, but the people had refused to believe. Now watch what happens in the next three verses after Elijah announces God's curse. And the word of the Lord came to him, depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook of Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. 
You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. God sends Elijah out of the land of Israel. He sends him back across the Jordan River into the wilderness. By sending Elijah away, God is taking the one man who speaks the truth out of the kingdom, out of the promised land. God takes his word away and he allows his people to suffer the consequences of their rebellion, drought and famine and death. That is a scary picture. Too often, too often I see followers of Jesus choose sin instead of obedience. And they often do so having made a kind of cynical calculation, believing that Jesus has to forgive them because that's what he does, right? So why not enjoy life while you can and ask for forgiveness after the fun has passed? Now, what they fail to account for is the fact that sometimes famine kills you first. When God's people disobey and they're unrepentant, God allows them to suffer the consequences of their disobedience. Now, of course, forgiveness is always available to those who turn away from their sin and truly repent. But when we choose sin repeatedly, when we refuse to trust God's provision, and instead we make sacrifices on the altars of success and self-preservation, we step farther and farther and farther away from God's Word, and therefore farther and farther away from the likelihood of true repentance. Please don't shrug at your own sin. Please don't excuse your rebellion saying one day you'll sort it out. Please do not presume on God's patience. Sin is powerful and judgment is real. There's one last theme to cover. Elijah's shown us the truth about power. He's reminded us of the awful reality of God's judgment. And last of all, in these verses, We catch a glimpse of the adventure of obedience. So listen to verses 5 to 7. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook of Cherith that is east of the Jordan, and the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. And after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. So in verse 4, God told Elijah to go to the one place where Elijah knew that nothing could grow. So if famine was a threat in Samaria, it was guaranteed in the desert. It makes no sense. But Elijah went because God promised to feed him there. Back in Exodus, Exodus 15, having led the entire nation into the desert, God promised to feed them every day, every day in the desert. So he sent them manna. And when he did, he warned them not to collect any more than they needed for the day because it would rot overnight and stink up their tents. God invited them to trust him 
one day at a time. He invites Elijah into this same trust when he tells him to camp by the brook of Cherith. Each day the ravens bring him bread and meat, and each day he drinks from the brook that God provides. There's this incredible contrast with the ravens here because just a few chapters prior, the ravens are described as picking at the dead flesh of the disobedient who have died. Here, they feed God's faithful servant. God provides for those who listen to his word and obey, but it is never easy. We want easy But God doesn't set us up for stress-free living by providing all that we need in advance. The blessings of obedience are not abundance, comfort, and perfect health. God provides day-to-day for our needs and invites us to trust Him day-to-day. Obedience is an adventure. One day at a time, trust in God's provision. Now, even then, even when we're being faithful and obedient, sometimes the water runs out. Having gone into the wilderness, having obeyed God, having done what He asked, what happens? The the brook dries up. Verse 7. Now, look ahead, and you can see that God provides for Elijah's needs. But we can't ignore the fact that God brings Elijah to the end of his natural resources. In this life of obedience, God draws us deeper and deeper and deeper into total trust and absolute obedience. And he does this by taking us to the end of our resources where we have nothing left to lean on except him. It is not easy but it is a glorious adventure, one in which God always provides. In our gospel reading in John 6, the people asked Jesus for a sign of his power. They'd seen him miraculously feed the 5,000 a few days prior with bread and fish, and they wanted another miracle. They wanted to see if he could produce manna like Moses. They wanted to see if he could fill their bellies. Well, in response, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Instead of a one-time miracle, a meal that would have filled them up for just a day, or a brook that would eventually run dry, Jesus gave them And he gave us himself. He invited them and he invites us to trust in him, to live with him, to follow him day by day by day, and to experience his gracious provision every step of the way. That's the adventure of obedience. It is not easy. Adventures never are but it is the only way we will ever meet our deepest hungers. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for these truths about power. 
that you are in control, that you are sovereign, gracious, and good. Lord, we shudder at the truth about judgment, that it is real. We ask for a proper and healthy perspective on our sins, that we might never shrug at them, but repent and return to you day by day. We thank you that you have invited us into the adventure of obedience, that you are teaching us to trust you. Give us grace for today, Lord God, to hear and to obey and to follow and to receive your gracious provision. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for giving us yourself. Would you fill our hearts and our lives with the joy and the peace of your presence? Amen.